Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome Daniel Lunowski to the show. Daniel is professor of history at the University of Memphis and the author of three previous books, as well as being the editor of Austrian History Yearbook. Most recently, his fourth book is a really wonderful new text called The Plunder, the 1898 Anti-Jewish Riots in Habsburg, Galicia. The book is a close examination of the outbreak of violence that convulsed Galicia in the spring and early summer of 1898. In it, Daniel narrates the course of the violence and examines the way in which changing social, economic, and political conditions in the regions contributed. I'm thrilled to talk to him about the book. Daniel, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here and to take the opportunity to talk about my book with you and your audience. So Daniel, we always start the same way. And so I'd invite you, uh, maybe as we begin the interview, just to say a little bit about yourself and uh, where'd you come from and how did you get interested in history and, and how did you get interested in Habsburg history? Sure. That's uh, I'm originally from uh, New Jersey, which has, I guess, little to do with it. But uh, the course of things uh, took me to study history at, uh, as an undergraduate student at the University of Michigan, and uh, I was very drawn uh, to history, and I took some uh, classes with, among other people, a very charismatic professor, which is often how things go, um, Roman Sporluck, a great figure in the field of Eastern European history. And... Um, that got me interested in that part of the world, Central and Eastern Europe. And when I uh, finished my undergraduate degree there, I went to Germany for a while doing some language work and uh, came back to the United States, bummed around, uh, applied and had a Fulbright back to Germany again. And uh, by the time I was ready to apply for graduate school, I was sure that it was really the Habsburg monarchy and not German history that I was most interested in. questions of, again, maybe coming out of that experience with that charismatic professor, questions of identification, nationalism, the the artificiality of, of these kinds of identities was something I found very interesting at the time and much more, to me, complicated and fascinating in the Habsburg uh, part of Europe than in Germany. That's how I felt about it when I had to make that decision. When I applied for graduate school, I applied to uh, Columbia University, where Ishvan Dayak, a really leading figure in the field of Habsburg history, uh, was the major uh, per- person there. And that's that's what happened. That's where I ended up. So your first couple books really deal with that kind of question of symbolism and patriotism and identity. Do you, can, can you just kind of summarize for the listeners those kind of questions you asked in those first couple books? Absolutely. Um, Habsburg historiography, uh, the approaches taken, let's say, to Habsburg history uh, 20 years ago and more, 
uh, looked at the monarchy as uh, as an obsolete construction that in the age of modernization, of industrialization and communication and increasing literacy and department stores and so on and so on, that the future had to be nation states and not empires. And that meant the Habsburg state was doomed uh, to eventual destruction with the rise of nationalism. My book, my first study, my dissertation, I should say, which became a book, was part of, I think, a whole wave of new ways of thinking about the state, not thinking about its inevitable destruction, but about what held it together and how it functioned. My particular contribution to that was about how the uh, dynasty itself uh, served as a symbol of unity among the peoples of the state, what kind of ways that that patriotism was uh, was promoted and how it was received uh, to some degree, certainly by uh, different parts of the population. So that's what that first book was about, based on my dissertation called The Pomp and Politics of Patriotism, Imperial Celebrations in Habsburg, Austria. And my uh, second book was a co-edited volume that I did with a a colleague of mine uh, who's now a professor in Salzburg, a British scholar. Um, and he and I uh, had, were doing projects that complemented each other as our sort of dissertation dissertations turned into our uh, respective first books. And we uh, put our, our interests together to create The Limits of Loyalty, a, com- a compilation of essays by ourselves and other scholars that also looked at the dynasty uh, in different parts of the monarchy and how it was promoted and challenged uh, also. Because we're saying we're not trying to replace the narrative of inevitable destruction with one of nothing but friendly, happy people either. Um, And so that's why it's called the limits of loyalty. But nonetheless, we agreed, the two of us certainly, that uh, this was a much uh, more powerful force, a much more... uh, pervasive part of the culture of the state than uh, had previously been recognized. So those were those two uh, projects. And in the years since, I don't actually know when you started this, but in the, sometime in the years since, you became editor of the Austrian History Yearbook. So so I wonder if you'd, you'd talk a little bit about the yearbook and what it is and what you try and do with it. Absolutely. So um, I've been editor, I think this is my third or fourth year, and the Austrian History Yearbook is, uh, we would say, of course, I'm the editor of it, so I will say this, but it's the premier uh, journal in the English language for um, Habsburg history and post-Habsburg. So although it's called the Austrian History Yearbook, um, and it has its roots actually in uh, agreements and funding actually from the Austrian state in the 1960s, um, it's uh, our, our writ, our, our mission is uh, to really be the place where a new and established important scholars publish uh, their innovative studies and work. So it's really a kind of community builder among scholars of uh, Habsburg history and post-Habsburg. And by ha- post-Habsburg, I mean anywhere that after 1918 had once been part of the Habsburg. So how did you get interested then in the subject of, um, and I'll I'll just use this word now and we can problematize it later, but anti-Semitic violence 
um, in the Habsburg monarchy. How, how did that become an, a subject you wanted to pursue? Sure. Um, when I was all the way back, when I was doing my d- dissertation research, um, one of the major parts of my study was looking at uh, how the Jubilees of Franz Josef, who became emperor in 1848, were celebrated. So, for example, most importantly, the 1898 50th Jubilee, the 1908 60th Jubilee. So while I was uh, looking at uh, newspapers and all kinds of other source material, I found some references to this violence uh, in this part of Alicia, this uh, northeastern province of the Habsburg monarchy. And I really had never read anything about that before. It was very surprising to me to come across something like this that really was not a very well-known uh, part of uh, scholarship on that period. So uh, I always knew that I would want to come back to that and really study that as a second original uh, sort of focus. And so when I was able to finally get the opportunity with time and space and family life allowed me to get back over to the archives for significant periods of time, this is what I turned to, to try and see just what happened but also, uh, as a Habsburg historian, what uh, the state, uh, the state and society of specifically of, Hab- of the Habsburg uh, uh, system, how uh, how this could take place, uh, what uh, the reactions were, and so on. So, um, I came at it uh, as a Habsburg historian. I think this is significant to how the book presents itself. I came out as a Habsburg historian, not as a historian of the Jewish experience, or even a historian of anti-Semitism, not a scholar who spent decades on the study of anti-Semitism before this. So for me, I was most interested in how could this violent wave have taken place in a state that was a constitutional system, and then how did that uh, system deal with the aftermath of violence. Those were the things, uh, the center, at least, of my original interest. So by way of introducing the book, maybe you could sketch out for us the the wave of violence that's at the heart of your book. What what happens in Galicia in 1898? Good. The violence is... connected, or so I argue in this book, to many other things, two important new factors. There are all kinds of things that were already there, Um, but two uh, new factors, important factors in the 1890s uh, were first the spread of a new kind of virulent uh, Catholic-inspired anti-Jewish sentiment, anti-Semitism, and, uh, and the second, a new mass politics, which uh, reaches this province in the 1890s as well. So those two new features playing off of each other create a different kind of context. And also, so I argue in the book, meant that the kind of uh, you know, momentary conflicts that took place here or there intermittently throughout uh, the 19th century every now and then, um, and then sort of disappeared, but never became 
part of any waves of violence or anything that became, uh, let's say, central to the media of the day, uh, that uh, the dynamic between these new factors led to this uh, this violent uh, incidents uh, being attached to and promoting, leading to other such incidents, creating this uh, this wave of violence. So it, um, I mean, I don't know if you want me to map it out a little bit or not, but it, it sure, it, it the first, uh, well, I could even be more specific that the first elections for the uh, new, uh, how would I put it? The, the new um, um, uh, universal manhood suffrage curia in the half complicated Habsburg parliamentary system took place in 1897. So until that time, uh, all voters who could vote were divided into four categories, and they each category, of course, the wealthier had uh, more weight. Um, and to even be in any of those categories, you had to pay a certain amount of taxes um, to qualify. So uh, the minority of people could vote. So this fifth curia was added for everyone else. Um, and so the peasant vote, the poor, the vote of the poor now counted for the parliamentary election. So there's a rise in organizing and mobilizing by peasant oriented uh, parties and parties interested in the small town and rural votes. So this is taking place in 1897. In 1898, there are two specific small, I don't know, we would say off elections because two representatives to parliament pass away. And so uh, there are these two individual elections um, and the violence is tied in some ways to these two votes. In preparation for them, uh, there's a series of mass meetings, uh, constant electioneering in these areas in which rival uh, peasant parties are denouncing uh, their their competitors as the tools of the Jews and so on. Um, and again, that's the context where uh, the this violent dynamic takes place. And all of this reflected always in the uh, rural press, which is uh, reflecting what's going on and then being read by the few literate people and read out loud to others. So there's a kind of dynamic uh, between the press and the violence. Uh, people read or hear about violent incidents elsewhere and come to believe that it's permitted. Um, and so they, uh, they continue uh, violent actions elsewhere. So most of the incidents begin in, um, in sort of special moments when lots of rural people come into these small market towns of the region. These were towns that had uh, regular uh, market days, once a month, twice a month, and so on. And people buying and selling from the countryside would come in. Very often, the uh, the central squares would be filled with booths. Most of the people selling and buying things in those booths uh, were Jews from those towns themselves. And so, this interaction, bringing the rural people into the town, this uh, this economic relationship between buyers and sellers, uh, always creates the potential for tension 
right? But when a violent incident begins and then people spread out from those places back to their homes and all of this is reported on the media and so on, back and forth, uh, uh, the movement of attacks goes from these towns back out into the countryside um, and then continues to spread from there. So, yeah, so the marketplaces also for special Catholic holidays when people come into these towns for uh, church services and then leave them and begin looting uh, Jewish uh, businesses. Um, but there's also a few incidents of new, specifically, uh, or at least attempted efforts to create Polish national uh, commemorations or festivals, uh, which are drawing uh, peasants into the into the towns, uh, and then violent incidents take place. And as the peasants go back to their uh, home villages, they bring that experience of violence back again. So, so that's the kind of uh, way it flows. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So you, so you talked about the, the new form of politics, um, and you mentioned the growth of Catholic antisemitism. Can let's back up to that just for a second. And so, so is the, is this growth of Catholic anti? I guess I'd say two things. One is, is the growth of Catholic anti-Semitism in this region distinctive to this region, or is it largely picking up on the same kinds of themes and concerns uh, that are um, identified and elevated across the continent? Right. So um, it's both picking up themes elevated and identified across the continent and uh, specific uh, things going on in Galicia itself. So, um, for example, beginning, of, it's not the invention of a, of a Catholic uh, anti-Jewish attitudes, of course, in this period. But beginning in the early uh, 1890s, the uh, Catholic Church in Rome, the Jesuit press in Rome, is a writing and talking about the need for a Catholic response to modernization against the godless socialism and secular liberalism, that there has to be a Catholic social uh, activism. Right? Um, and this becomes translated in the Galician context into an activism specifically directed against the Jewish population. So, for example, in 1893, there's a Catholic Congress that meets in Krakow, and uh, out of that comes a sort of agreement by those who participate to boycott uh, Jewish businesses, uh, Jewish, uh, uh, yeah, Jewish economic uh, institutions. Um, it doesn't doesn't mean people all over the place actually do boycott, but it means the boycott is uh, promoted and new. Uh, newspapers and new associations and organizations come out of this Congress. All of them are uh, focused, at least in part, on this idea that a Catholic modernization has to be, at its essence, anti-Jewish. Right? So that's one aspect of why it happens in this period. And this new electioneering, what happens there is that new peasant parties use this sort of uh, pamphlets and materials created by these new Catholic newspapers and institutions and bring that to their audiences uh, as they do their electioneering. So uh, an example of this that I write about is a particular pamphlet called uh, Jewish Secrets or Tayyip 
Zhidovskia, which is written by a priest who was a, a catechist in Krakow. He writes this work, which he calls a work of asemitism. He says Catholics can't be racist anti-Semites uh, because baptism has to be able to wash away the sin and convert uh, the sinner uh, right to Catholicism. But uh, asemitism uh, is a program to live and be entirely freed of the Jewish, the Jews. So to have our children not go to Jewish schools, to not buy and sell from Jewish businesses and so on. Um, and this pamphlet, uh, which also draws on older themes, of uh, ritual murder charges and supposed Talmudic license for Jews to kill Gentiles and all kinds of other things um, as well, this pamphlet is then uh, distributed, let's say reviewed, reviewed positively in the partisan peasant press, which is also involved in this electioneering. Um, and uh, this particular peasant party, the Catholic People's Party, or Christian, excuse me, the Christian People's Party of this, headed also by a priest, Father Stanisław Stoyawowski, brings this pamphlet with them to some of their rallies and passes it out, sells them in cheap copies and so on. So it brings this Catholic anti-Semitism, which is a pan-European phenomenon in the period, but brings it right to this local level. So that's just one example of that. Yeah. Yeah, I was really struck by the, the frequency with which, and I think you refer to them as tap rooms, which I'm assuming is a kind of bar, cafe kind of thing. I was struck by how often that Jewish institution came up in the complaints were aired by the uh, the non-Jews who who you write about. Is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's an, it's really um, uh, certainly there was a great um, maybe this is something I should add now, which has uh, touches on that. That there's a a very very uh, visible social, cultural, and economic divide between Christian and Jews in this particular area at this particular time. So um, Jews in this particular area were uh, overwhelmingly involved in uh, petty commerce uh, and trade. A great symbol of that are these, as I said, these booths and stores that line these small market towns, very often owned or administered by Jews or uh, the uh, the uh, tap rooms, right? These uh, really astounding number, thousands of uh, small saloons. I don't know what other term to use. Some are taverns with real restaurants. Some have uh, rooms you can stay in uh, as sort of hotel guests. Some are just uh, just uh, windows that open up and you can, you can uh, buy vodka and sausages through it. So there's a whole range of what these things are. But there are thousands of them. Um, there are tap rooms like this in almost every village, sometimes two or three, even in small villages. And about 80 plus percent of uh, everyone in Galicia who was involved in the alcohol trade were Jews. So this uh, creates a certain kind of profile, economic profile, uh, that's very different from the overwhelmingly agricultural non-Jewish population. 
right? So that's very, and then that's even more visible uh, in terms of when you think of the dress, right? Here is a, a region which is still a very visibly Hasidic. It doesn't mean everyone is a deeply religious Hasid, but Hasidism is still very powerfully visible there. So uh, Jews often are dressed quite differently. Um, they're speaking on the street, and very obviously in these small towns, their pattern of everyday life, weekly life, revolves around the Jewish religious calendar, very different from the Catholics. So I have among other things, I always like to use as many images as I can. And one of the striking images that uh, I have in my book is from, uh, there are certainly idealized images, no doubt, but it's from a, uh, a volume published in 1898 from the uh, Austro-Hungarian monarchy in word and image, a famous series produced under the patronage of, by this time, the dead from suicide, son of the Emperor Franz Josef, that, that uh, uh, shows uh, pictures of peasants and Jews from or Im- illustrations, I should say, of peasants and Jews from this area. And you can get a sense of just how different people seemed to be. Um, that difference doesn't have to mean that people perceive that as danger versus just the lay of the land and how things worked, right? But this Catholic anti-Semitism, this political mobilization, uh, was uh, was bringing this idea that Catholic Jewish difference was a difference that was threatening. Well, let's talk about the violence itself. Um, and I think often when you say anti-Semitic violence, people assume that there are, uh, is a wave of killing. Uh, but actually, very few Jews die in this violence. So can you say what this, what kind of violence this was and, 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 and what kind of impact it had? Sure. Um, actually, no Jews are killed in the violence. The people who die, who are killed, approximately 20, it's hard to add it up from the sources that I have and be 100% sure, but something like 20 people are killed and those are all people shot down by the gendarmes and the military to protect the population from rioters. So it's a very different experience than what happens in the Russian Empire. This is why, you know, me as a Habsburg historian, this is quite an interesting aspect of the events. But that doesn't mean that the confrontations between uh, Christians and Jews in these villages and towns wasn't, uh, weren't uh, frightening and dangerous. Right. Sometimes uh, the confrontations were as simple as rocks being thrown at windows. Other times, break-ins into synagogues, synagogues, trash, Torahs thrown into the mud, sort of symbolic uh, violence, if you want. Um, sometimes some um, crowds of people surrounding uh, Jewish homes and blowing on horns and pounding together uh, metal instruments to make loud noise for hours at a time. Um, what in German is called Katzenmusik, I translate it as caterwauling. Um, um, but also uh, very personal confrontations between people who knew each other, who lived in the same villages with each other, who would uh, come to the tap room 
the tap room they know and have frequented uh, insist uh, that they be given vodka and then after drinking a while trash destroy the inside of the tavern sometimes burn it down uh, sometimes beat uh, severely uh, the Jewish uh, owners and their families humiliate some people there are examples of course of humiliation forcing people uh, onto their knees and and other uh, other things like this pulling beards um, but a lot of punching a lot of hitting with uh, sticks uh, it's uh, that's the, the level of most of the uh, most of the violence. So it was certainly dangerous and frightening, but but there was a it seems to be here right a line that people didn't cross, right? That they didn't move into uh, into the killing, which of course we see when we come down, uh, even in this half Habsburg post Habsburg space, when we come down to World War One and beyond, but. Here during the Habsburg period, it's, it's, it stops short of murder. So, so you actually talk about the uh, existence of communal violence in the Habsburg uh, Empire before 1898. How, how similar is this violence in Galicia to the kinds of violence you see in other places in the empire? Well, the other examples of uh, of violence at least in these decades, uh, were, uh, can't really be that well compared. They're intermittent, they're short moments of uh, sort of famously Czech and German uh, students uh, fighting on the streets of Prague, for example, things like this. Um, in Galicia, there were some uh, moments in specific places in uh, the 1890s as well, where there were confrontations largely between uh, uh, railroad or mine workers and uh, Jews who were uh, seen as, again, economic uh, oppressors in some way. And those incidents uh, were short, uh, one day, two days, and that was it. So uh, this is very different than any of those in that uh, this went on for about five weeks or so. Um, not everywhere for five weeks, but altogether um, for about five weeks in over 400 locations. Again, these are locations anywhere from tiny little towns of a few dozen people to, or villages, I should say, to larger towns of several thousand people. Um, so very different kinds of locations. but. Uh, in this sense, it's quite different. So who is it that commits the violence? Is there some kind of pattern among the perpetrators and, and what kinds of people are either, uh, or, or, or and, and is there a distinction? You draw a distinction between the people who, who, who kind of lead the violence and, and people who follow. Um, so maybe you can say a little bit about that. <laughs> um, I try to do that. Um, in my in my effort to try and see what is uh, what is motivating the people who are most active in the violence, and it, they seem to be different kinds of people and motivated by different kinds of things. I know that's a wishy washy answer, um, but some some of the some of those who are the most active uh, leaders of violence, and here by this I mean who are uh, gathering people together, who are the first to break in or start smashing something or start physically uh, harming a Jewish person. Um, 
Some of these are people who were among the uh, the smaller numbers of literate literate people in the countryside who have uh, read some of this Catholic literature or some of the pamphlets and newspapers produced by these new political parties. Um, so there we see some direct ties uh, to these things I was talking about. Um, others are uh, young people who were, let's say, followers or went to attend a particular priest's uh, church, and that priest himself was involved in this kind of politics and so spoke in its sermons about the Jews in certain ways. Um, others were uh, people who were leaders of their villages, so might have uh, brought or been among a group of people who come to town for market day or for one of these uh, kinds of new festivals or a Catholic festival. Um, and then been involved in some kind of violent moment, and then yell, it's permitted, it's happening all over the place, now is our time to do the same. And because these people, uh, someone like this, is seen as a leader in their local village, quite a few others uh, accept that leadership at that moment and join in, and that uh, spirals uh, around. We also have some incidents of uh, local policemen who uh, who are involved in uh, gathering uh, and leading violence. So there are also some of the most violent moments are people who themselves saw this as a moment of personal revenge. Uh, one specific uh, incident that's coming to my mind is where someone uh, beats uh, a particular Jewish uh, owner of a farmhouse and tells everyone around him, this guy has a lot of money, let's plunder. And the reason he knows or thinks he knows about this particular Jewish person's uh, finances is because this person uh, bought the bankrupt farm from him. He had gone bankrupt, and this was the person who now owns the land he once had as an independent farmer. So sometimes it's revenge. Other times it's uh, criminal criminal elements who have long criminal records who see the sort of chaotic moment of uh, violence spreading as a moment when they can do something as well. Right? There doesn't seem to be connections for some of them to the new anti-Semitism or these new political movements. Uh, they're not necessarily leaders of communities, uh, but here is a moment they can steal some uh, vodka, some other things, uh, indulge themselves in some uh, violent, uh, violent lashing out. So there's all kinds of uh, motivations going on. But, uh, and all those things are, are there in other moments in time. But what happens again here is that there's a dynamic, that these things are, are reported on, their news is spread about them by the new political movements, by the new uh, uh, press, which is expanding in this period at this particular place and time. And people read about what happened elsewhere, right? And they read that people elsewhere beat Jews and claimed this was permitted by the emperor. And so that by reading that reporting in the newspaper, people then claim that's proof it is in fact permitted to us to do that. So yeah, so I guess that brings up one of the other important elements here, which is this question of rumors of permission, because behind so much of this violence is the 
at least the pervasive uh, uh, news or claim that the emperor or the pope uh, has permitted peasants to beat and rob the Jews for certain periods of time. And uh, some of these stories are rather uh, colorful and uh, outlandish. Some of them uh, spread around that, uh, that the emperor's son, who again had committed suicide a year in the a decade before, was still alive and in Brazil and was calling on the peasants now to beat the Jews to help him uh, regain his heritage. Um, uh, maybe the most a colorful of all was a rumor that the Jews had bribed the Pope's barber, the man who, who seemingly was responsible for Franz Josef's famous uh, mutton chop beard style, that, uh, that this barber was bribed by the Jews to slit his throat when he's uh, cutting uh, or shaping the emperor's beard but uh, out of patriotism, he cries uh, and refuses at the last moment, admits to the conspiracy to the emperor, who then gives his permission for the Jews to be beaten. So uh, one of the questions is, did people really believe these kind of rumors? And how can we know that? Or did they just use them? Did they shape them for their own benefit? And here I'd say yes to both of those things. There's quite a bit of evidence that many people believe those rumors. So an example in one particular town, Kavadia Zepshadovska, um, a man in a store, so a store owner, had, uh, had been stocking a new, um, I guess a new chemical, which was supposedly effective at removing ink stains from clothing. And the company that uh, got him to stock it gave him some advertisements. And the advertisement said, you know, this new uh, product is, removes ink stains. Well, the word that was used for ink stains, jid, uh, is the same word for Jew. I don't know enough of the etymology why that's used for ink stain. Um, but if to an illiterate or half illiterate crowd, this uh, became a ticket giving people permission to attack Jews. And uh, this store owner said quite a few people came in asking for tickets to beat the Jews. But that's just one example where, yes, people, some people certainly believed that there was some kind of permission, some kind of allowance to, to do this violence. Others may have just put different different pieces of the sort of canon of rumors spreading around together in different creative ways for their own benefit, that they wanted to have violence at a certain moment. So they, they, they took pieces of what they had heard together and create a new rumor that violence is about to occur. Um, and then when it does, the rumor is proven true, of course. So. How, how do Habsburg authorities respond to the violence? Good. Well, the, the Habsburg state, this was the part that originally had drawn me to this, again, not as a scholar of Jewish history or anti-Semitism per se, but how does the state deal with this? And of course, what is the state anyway in the Habsburg monarchy? Because it has two states and more than two states and less than two states. There's Austria and there's Hungary. 
there's the cabinet in Vienna and the central ministries, and then there's the governor's office in each province and its own uh, underlings uh, in each county, these district captains. Meanwhile, there are municipal, municipal autonomy. So in big towns and even small towns, there are uh, you know, people who are representing the people there in different positions of leadership. So it's very complicated to say what the state response is. Um, but certainly in uh, Galicia, the governor of Galicia, who was newly appointed and really is subject to the Ministry of the Interior in Vienna um, and through, the, through there to the emperor, uh, certainly uh, was concerned um, and started early on calling for increases in gendarme patrols. He starts asking the military to lend him military assistance and uh, deploy some troops in certain places. But his response was limited, believing that this will blow over until uh, near the end of June, when there was a whole series of really mass urban, urban, these are small towns, but mass riots in towns, um, in Novi and Stari Sanch, for example, literally thousands of people were involved uh, in these riots um, in the town, the village of Lucha, uh, in this period, at least 800 people surrounded a, a Jewish uh, tavern uh, and were involved in that violence. And in at least one incident, some people uh, fired on Habsburg troops and then ran into the forest uh, and, and were not uh, apprehended. So there was a belief uh, in the uh, last week of June, that things had gone beyond uh, what normal measures could control. And uh, the governor of Galicia uh, asks uh, and receives permission from the Minister of the Interior, uh, Thun, and Franz Josef himself to declare a state of emergency, which is declared for 33 counties in the western half of the province. Um, and two districts, two judicial districts, are actually put under a special tribunal, or we might think of as martial law. A very dramatic moment where representatives of the uh, governor's office uh, and the military blow trumpets in the square in these two towns uh, and announce in a very formalistic way that there is a special tribunal here and anyone who's caught in, uh, in, uh, arson or robbery uh, will be uh, tried almost immediately and sentenced and executed with no possibility of parole. So that never happens, by the way. They don't execute anybody. Um, although the chief executioner, uh, a man named Carl Zeilinger, who was part of a family line of, of uh, hangmen, uh, the chief executioner of Vienna was sent to Galicia, and the news was spread about that, but it was really a deterrent more than anything else. So, yeah, so so the what did the state of emergency mean? Well, it meant uh, that most of the constitutional protections that, in a way, made the Habsburg monarchy a, a very different place from somewhere like the Russian Empire, so freedom of movement, uh, freedom from arbitrary arrest, postal secrecy, freedom uh, of, of the press, and, uh, and so on. Uh, all of these things were suspended. Even jury trials were suspended. 
um, in order to uh, get a grip on the violence. Thousands of military uh, troops were deployed. Uh, control over them was handed over to a general who believed he could whip things into shape in short order. Um, and uh, yeah, and then uh, after uh, this moment, which which really is declared the state of emergency on June 28th, uh, follows then this long series of uh, investigations and trials that go on for months afterwards. Yeah, I was going to ask about the trials. Um, how, how did the or how did the accused? Um, how did they try and explain their actions in these trials? Good. Um, it's interesting because they they uh, they explain it in ways that sh- at least attempt to shift. Well, it's, it's not that surprising, right? That an offended attempts to shift the blame from themselves onto their victims, right? So the the uh, defense attorneys, I should say, more than the defendants, use this tactic where they say that they don't deny that their clients are drunkards and illiterate, many of them, although not all of them, by the way, by far, but this is what the attorneys say. My poor, drunk, illiterate clients are fooled by the the press reports about rumors of imperial permission. They're just too innocent to, to understand reality, and therefore they did these things. And they add to this that Proof uh, of the Jews' uh, corruption, a corruptive influence, let's say, in the countryside, is in fact that reality that the peasants are drunk always from the Jewish tavern and are kept stupid by Jewish power and are dependent on Jewish credit. And so that's what you get. So actually, this violence only proves the guilt of the Jews themselves. So this is the the main focus, I think, of the defense in, in, in many of these trials. I mean, uh, many there are scores of trials, so some of them are just about a couple of people who are drunk or get drunk at a tap room in, the, in between villages and just threaten the tavern keeper and say, if you don't give me free alcohol, I'll trash this place like every place else is getting trashed, right? So they take advantage of that. Maybe they'll trash or maybe they'll hit someone. But those trials are short. But the bigger trials that last and, and uh, have many more defendants there, these defense attorneys use this kind of tactic. That the whole thing is just proof of the guilt of the Jews. Right? That all uh, really was nothing that big. It was just some drunk people kept ignorant by the Jews who lash out. It's picked up by the Jewish-controlled press in Vienna and spread around the world that we are backward barbarians and so on and so on. So everything is the fault. So, so let me follow up with that by, by saying, how many, how many of the people who were accused, how many of them were convicted and what kind of punishments did they face? Okay, so um, of the 5,000 or more people who were investigated and charged, and that's not everybody who was arrested by far, um, and that includes... Polish-speaking peasants and day laborers and construction workers, but also city council members and shopkeepers and people in their 70s, men in their 70s, even 80s, right? It's a very women of all ages. Um, 
almost 4,000 actually went to trial, about 3,800 people, and more than 2,300 people were sentenced to time in jail served or to prison terms. So those sentences were anywhere from a few days to the, the longest sentence I saw was three years. That was very exceptional. But there were many sentences of people for five, six, seven months and more. Uh, those who especially uh, were, uh, were violent uh, personally toward Jews uh, received, as it's not surprisingly, the longest sentences. Um, yeah, so that said, one thing I, I should point out is that as, as much as that makes the Hasburg state look uh, like it is uh, the good guy here, right, suppressing uh, violence, acting uh, to restore the rule of law, that doesn't mean the state uh, saw it as, as part of its job, anti-Semitic rhetoric, uh, for example, the prosecutors and in their indictments themselves uh, in some of the most uh, well-publicized examples, wrote that, uh, you know, in this, the, the reason peasants hated Jews here was because they were so exploited by the Jews, uh, or the Jews are so corrupt here, or the, the Jews are so exaggerated in their claims of fear and their fear of violence, and, and things like this are there in uh, the prosecutor's indictments. So even as the the state is restoring order, um, they are distancing themselves from being seen. The state's uh, agents don't want to be seen as uh, taking the Jews' side exactly at the same time. So so we're running close on time. So let me kind of, there's much more to this book, I, I should say to the listeners. And, and, and Daniel does a really nice job of thick description and, and talking about the violence and, and, and kind of parsing out motives and, 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 and actions. Uh, and so I really recommend that you go, go look at it. Um, so what is the legacy? Let's, let's conclude by saying, what are, what are the legacies of, of this violence for the Habsburg empire? I mean, uh, the Hasbrook Empire after the 1867 Compromise, which turns it into the constitutional double state of Austria, uh, Hungary set in uh, in stone uh, protection of uh, people based on religion, uh, secured uh, their rights, um, and yet here, in order to to uh, preserve order, the state had to. Uh, set most of the constitutional rights aside. So what we see here is in order to protect the Jewish population, the state has to deploy the military, uh, end freedom of assembly, at least for a time, freedom of the press, and so on. Which, um, if, you, if you want to talk about lessons, some Jews at the time uh, were, uh, were pleased to see the uh, state embodied in Franz Josef, the benevolent emperor, and so on protect them. Others thought, well, this is not such a great situation if you need uh, the military and uh, the gendarmes backed by the central state to protect the Jewish population. So um, certainly, uh, and scholars look now at the end of the state and uh, the, the fading of loyalty during World War I and the blunt force of the military and its deeming of different populations as disloyal during World War I. Um, it's setting aside 
its whole purpose, the Rechstadt, the state of, by, that, that rules uh, by law, we can see this as, in some sense, a precursor. In this moment of emergency, uh, the state has to act in ways that actually uh, threatens the loyalty of the population. It can't look like it's protecting the Jews. People come uh, here to be suspicious of state action. The political figures damn the state, declare themselves the protectors of constitutional values against the arbitrary power of the central government. Um, so uh, I think when we look uh, toward World War One, we can see here uh, some problems with the system that will become obviously uh, fatal issues during World War One. And then is there is there a legacy or what is the legacy? What is the how does this pattern of violence in this particular region at this point in time, how does this fit into the broader, uh, I don't know, evolution of Jewish Christian relations in Central Europe or Eastern Europe? Um, what, what, what is there anything we can learn from it in that respect? Well, certainly something that looms large here is that uh, here is the first moments of mass politics coming to the countryside, uh, the public-speaking countryside, and it comes with anti-Semitic violence. And the question of the Jews and relationship with Jews and Catholics and how to become uh, modernized in ways that work for the Catholic peasantry, all of these things are very politicized from the first moment. There's a an important, to me anyway, quotation from a newspaper printed in Lemberg or Lviv, uh, Lviv, the capital of the province, which says to the readers who don't want to call themselves anti-Semites, well, you can do that, but if you don't call yourself and embrace anti-Semitism, you're not really a Catholic and you're not really a Pole. And so what's dangerous here is finding of quote-unquote, Polish-Catholic political interests as in absolute opposition to the Jewish population. And that is a legacy that political figures who are involved in this period will carry with them into the interwar. I don't want to make a direct connection, although some listeners will hear the echoes of this, from this to the neighbors' violence of 1941, neighbors, uh, this famous book about Polish violence on Jews during the Holocaust, uh, beating and killing their own neighbors, right? Jan Gross's famous book. And here in 1898, we have neighbors who lived in the same villages beating up and plundering their neighbors' businesses, taverns, and only stopped by the state of emergency of the state. And they're told by the politicians most interested in their vote that you are not to blame, to blame ultimately is the Jews themselves. I mean, I think this is very ominous for the future of the region, as we see, of course. So, so that seems a good place to stop. And so I always end with the last couple questions uh, in, in the same way. And so the first one is, um, you've done an enormous amount of reading, both specific to this book and, and, and about the region in general. Um, is there a, a book or two or a documentary or a film? What, what would you recommend for listeners that was meaningful to you um, as you were writing this book? Mm -hmm. um, I think 
some things that I could recommend uh, really on the topic of, let's say, Jewish-Catholic uh, relations in the period, in this period, in Polish history general, generally, uh, Joanna Michlik's Poland's Other, the image of the Jew from 1800 to present, very good. A very accessible, newer book, Brian Porter Schutz's Faith and Fatherland, Catholicism, Modernity, and Poland, gets right at this question. Catholicism and Polish national identity, and of course, the place of the Jews. One other one that I'll mention as a scholarly book would be Glenn Dinner's Yankel's Tavern, which is really about an earlier period in the Russian partition of Poland, but it's still uh, certainly as relevant to what I'm talking about. I could certainly give you a more scholarly uh, suggestion as well, but that if you want, I can. I don't want to overwhelm your readers at the same time. <laughs> Um, and then, so the second book, or second question, sorry, um, is always the same. What are you working on now? Uh, good. Um, I am actually uh, approaching a, a new project. I've done some preliminary research on it, which is the history of the town and the beer brewery. It's Poland's most well-known beer brewery uh, of Zivietz, uh, which is a town that's in Galicia. And the beer brewery was founded by a branch of the Habsburg uh, dynasty in the 1840s and 50s. And this area, that branch of the family, after the collapse of the monarchy, became a Polish patriots uh, and famously refused to join the SS when the Nazis occupied. And this region becomes a laboratory of Nazi ethnic engineering in World War II, where uh, thousands and thousands of Poles are expelled. The Jewish population is exterminated. And uh, German, supposed blood Germans, are brought in from Bukovina and from Galicia uh, to, uh, to right into the homes of the expelled Poles and into the jobs in the beer brewery and elsewhere. And the brewery then makes beer for uh, the German German population and for the German army attacking into the Soviet Union. And after the war, uh, the brewery is, again, a Habsburg family possession, originally is, uh, is nationalized, of course, by the uh, Polish communist state, um, and then makes beer for export for hard currency, but is certainly a Polish communist uh, product. And finally, after 1989, um, I think in the early 90s, actually, it's bought by Heineken. And now it's a foreign-owned beer with Polish roots that are Habsburg. So it's through this one-town institution as a, as a sort of lens into the complicated history of the whole region, into these dueling utopian projects, murderous projects of the Nazis and of the communists, but also uh, the earlier uh, period as well under the Habsburgs and an interwar. I got to say, that sounds like a fascinating project. And I wish you well on it. I hope when you're done, you'll come back to talk uh, about the book with us on New Books Network. Uh, and until then, um, have a great end of the semester. I know you're about to launch into grading. So good luck with that. And, um, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. Take care. Bye-bye.